Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science. I believe it is 2024. Is that right, Katriona? I believe you're right. I don't know how, but yes. <laughs> yes, and in fact, it's um, where I think we're in February already, aren't we? Yeah, that's that's the most unbelievable bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, it is. Uh, I don't know. I mean, something's happened to the world. Maybe the Earth is spinning faster. Maybe um, gravity knows? is weakening or something. I don't know. Is there a scientific explanation? <laughs> uh, look, there's. I'm sure there is. Maybe there's something we can look up. That could be something really interesting, the the subjective experience or the objective experience of why time is accelerating. Um, if we only we had time to discuss such a thing, we've got so much more on our plates uh, for on this show for you today. Uh, Katrina, what have you got to, on, on your plate? Well, in the lead up to Valentine's Day, which isn't really a big thing for me, but, you know, I love science and... I love love, so here we go. Um, I'm going to talk about love, science, and prairie voles. What's prairie voles? They are a small rodent. They're smaller than a tennis ball, so they're, they're quite cute and fuzzy and, and fairy. Um, can be mistaken for rats and mice, but um, they're not, and they're rodents, and they're cute, and they can teach us about love. Oh, excellent. All right, well, um, some, some cute love. That sounds like what we all need to, um, to help us through <laughs> this, this difficult time we've got going on. What are you talking about? Well, I was going to say, with, uh, with my story, is maybe not quite as cute as, <laughs> as that, perhaps. Look, we have covered this a few times before on Lost in Science. I'll look back to the archives. You know, it's actually been a few years since we talked about it. But the um, Barulia ulcer which uh, is uh, endemic, it seems, in Victoria, Australia, as well as several other countries around the world, most notably several countries in Africa. Um, yeah, that is a disease that does affect humans, and it also affects possums mm. in Australia. So, yes, the, the cute and furry things do get a look in here, <laughs> but not quite in a, in a nice way. Um, yeah, but I'm going back to that because there has been some new research by uh, researchers here in Australia that have found good evidence for how it is being transmitted, at least here in this country, mm -hmm. um, which is good to know because it turns out I live in one of the hotspots for Borrelia ulcer infestation. So, uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to keep an eye on, on this one. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I thought I'd have a look at this, um, this latest research update, what it has to tell us and perhaps what it might mean for preventing the spread of this disease and potentially uh, internationally as well. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. So, a, um, you know, story about love, a story about, you know, pussy ulcers. <laughs> um, it's Valentine's Day all over. On with the show. Or perhaps VD Day, I should have said. <laughs> Lovely. Yes.
Well, science confirms it. We crave love. And I've been thinking about this lately because one, it's a, it's a recent research paper that has come out, but also yeah, love is in the air. And whether you're sort of longing for or you're hanging out with your partner, our brains seem to produce more of this sort of pleasure-inducing hormone, dopamine. And it's the same hormone that underlies, underlies cravings for sugar, nicotine, cocaine, and, and other things. So that's why sort of there are these headlines about craving love so it's all to do just with the fact that this hormone is associated with with cravings for those things as well so if you're heading out for a hot date and you 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 get like this flood of dopamine heading to your brain's reward center and motivating you to keep that that bond that you have with your partner alive but if you're heading out to meet a colleague instead perhaps the flood might be more like a mere trickle so you don't get as much dopamine Right. Depends on how much you like your colleague, I assume, in that case. Perhaps. I'm not saying in that way, but like, so, yeah, it's part of yeah, But there no, is some pleasure. It. If you enjoy hanging out with your colleague, presumably you're going to get some dopamine out of it, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, who knows? So I'll, I'll come back to this okay. question of how much can we actually gain from this study at the end. Um, yep. But as I alluded to at the start, prairie voles are animals that can teach us about love. And the University of Colorado Boulder researchers recently published this study that essentially found a biological signature of desire that that helps explain why we want to be with someone more than perhaps other people. Okay. But they didn't study people. They studied prairie voles. Um, And there's sort of this unique chemical imprint in the brain of the prairie voles when they're they're paired up. And then when they broke up, that dopamine sort of imprint faded away. Now, why did they choose prairie voles, though? (laughs) Well, it's because they, they seem to be sort of a notable animal model for studying relationships and social bonding because they undergo what we call pair bonding. Essentially, they're monogamous. And this is actually quite rare among mammals. I didn't quite know this, but... Um, in the 1970s, a zoologist, Deborah Kleinman, who incidentally helped create the field of conservation biology, and that's that's another story, but she estimated that only about 3% of mammal species are monogamous, and the prairie vole is among them. Me- male and, and female partners form lifelong pair bonds, and even sometimes when, when the female prairie vole dies, the male actually doesn't look for a new partner. They're, oh. Yeah, they're... they're sort of bonded for life. Um, so they were first discovered, well, not first discovered, but but there were, there were real strong hints um, that they were monogamous when an ecologist was studying rodents in general in the field and realized that unlike other rodent species, specific pairs of male and female prairie voles kept showing up together in the same traps. So it was quite random for other rodents, but they usually found the same pairs. So like a couple together in a trap. They didn't want to part. And then plus around this time, other studies looked into social behaviors and then also the hormones that underpin social behaviors, supporting this idea of pair bonding in prairie voles. And since then, these monogamous prairie voles have given us quite a a lot of insight actually into the neurobiology of love. Because now with great 
advances in, in tools and techniques, researchers can really watch neurons in action in the brain or even manipulate the activity of individual genes in specific brain regions in these pre-evolves to learn how bonds are forged, how early life shapes relationship and, and, and why perhaps it hurts when relationships fall apart. I'm assuming their brains are quite a bit smaller than ours. Yeah, <laughs> they are. They are a little bit smaller than ours. Um, but, you know, you've got to start somewhere, right? You can manipulate pre-evolves a lot more than you can probably manipulate humans. And probably, um, you know, with humans, we're complicated. Pre-evolves are a lot simpler. It's easier to sort of control these factors. So one study that looked into sort of a, a control and, and comparison looked at the hormone vasopressin, which is a regulator of bonding. And essentially, they compared the bonds between prairie voles and the promiscuous meadow voles. So two different voles, two different rodents, one being monogamous, one being promiscuous. And vasopressin, oxytocin, perhaps a hormone that you're familiar with, being mm -hmm. associated with love, and related hormones are quite ubiquitous in nature. So lots of animals have these hormones. So if these hormones are in lots of species, many of which aren't monogamous, it's clearly not just the presence that they're there that influences whether a species forms pair bonds. So it's more to do with the changes in the brain that are brought about by these hormones that, that can be influenced where receptors are for these hormones and how many receptors you okay. have. Okay. So one particular study looked at vasopressin receptors. And prairie voles have a lot of these receptors for vasopressin in the ventral pallidum, which is a part of the brain that's a core component of the reward system. And it's involved in addiction as well. Now, meadow voles also have vasopressin as a hormone, but they don't have heaps of the receptors for it in that same spot in the ventral pallidum. But when researchers delivered extra copies of the genes for these receptors into that specific part of the brain, so they forced the meadow voles now to have lots more of the receptors for vasopressin, the usually solitary and promiscuous meadow voles gained a propensity for cuddling, which I just find super cute. <laughs> so, so hang on. So the receptors, they are the things on the cells that accept, say, a chemical like a, a hormone, like, a, like the vasopressin, mm. right? Yeah. So what you're saying is that so the, 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 the hormone was there in mm -hmm. the meadow voles, but because they didn't have enough of these receptors in the right part of the brain, they weren't getting the reaction to it that is associated with yeah, the cravings and the, well, the affection in this case. Yeah. If you think of it like male, um, mm. the receptors are the mailbox and, you know, someone's got to be on that other end to actually empty the mailbox, collect the mail and... In this case, that's, you know, a cell. A cell is receiving this message and if it's got the receptor and it's checking it out, it's like, oh, okay, this is the male. Whereas, um, you know, I'm just picturing like a house with, with um, you know, no way of receiving this mail. Well, it's just not going to, the message won't be delivered. So, yeah, essentially without the message being delivered at a particular part of the brain, these meadow voles just don't really want to cuddle that much and they want to right. be promiscuous. <laughs> So, well, I'm getting something else. I'm yeah. getting something else out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so perhaps the more receptors that rodents have in the brain, specifically in this particular part, perhaps the more they're up for cuddling. 
Um, but in another study, so as we sort of advance a little bit more, scientists engineered a light-activated protein that can alter, alter the electricity of neurons in the prefrontal cortex, which is another region of the brain that influences reward because of its right. contact with the nucleus accumbens. So activating these neurons, so these neurons in the prefrontal cortex that are kind of touching the nucleus accumbens, um, with light when a vole is near a potential partner. So they activate these neurons when a prairie vole is near another prairie vole that could become a partner but isn't yet. By activating those neurons, it created a preference. So now these prairie voles are like, oh yeah, I see you and I like you. So it's sort of like a love potion kind of yeah. effect, you know. Yeah. Or yes. a love ray in this case. It's a, it's a light thing, <laughs> so it's a love ray. They're zapping them. Yeah, so essentially, if you if you zap these neurons, or if if you uh, have activity of these particular neurons, it creates mate preference, or perhaps associates, you know, the prairie vole that the, the the one that you're testing looking at is looking at. Um, just you know, it's going. Oh yeah, if you if you go out with this one, you get rewards, you get good vibes. And I, I mentioned, sort of skimmed over it, but the, the prefrontal cortex influences reward by touching the nucleus accumbens. Well, that is also a part of the brain that's influ- influencing okay. rewards. And if neurons in that part of the brain itself fire up before a prairival um, approaches a mate, then it's more likely that it's, it's going to mate. And the number okay. of neurons that are responding to that mate increases as the bond solidifies over time. So there are all these neurons firing in different parts of the brain that influence reward. And particularly when, when this prairie vol is, is seeing its mate or a potential mate. So the, lastly, the, the most recent study that I alluded to, like right at the beginning looked at dopamine. So another one that I talked about was vasopressin, but this one is dopamine and its role when thinking about loved ones. And the researchers made the prairie voles have to work and put in effort to reunite with their their mate. So they had to like climb over barriers or or climb over walls and things to get to either their partner or a vole that they didn't really know. So that's that's hence the the comparison between a loved one or a colleague that I Hang on, so did they know ahead of time who they were climbing over the barriers for or walking five hundred miles for? Yeah. <laughs> yes, so they could kind of like sense. Right. Okay. Oh yeah, I know you. You're a stranger. Which one? Which one of the two it is? And at the same time, they were reading out dopamine in in that same area of the brain, the nucleus accumbens, associated with with reward. And there was much more dopamine when the vole was trying to go towards its pair bonded partner than just any other vole. So this suggests that not only is dopamine really important for motivating us to seek out its partner, but there's actually more that course through our reward center when we are with our partner than when we're with a stranger. But then in another experiment in in the same study, the pro-vole couple was kept apart for four weeks and four weeks doesn't seem like a long time, but that's an eternity in the life of a rodent and it's long enough for voles in the wild to you know look for another partner if they're going to oh. mm-hmm. and this long-term separation erodes that that partner associated dopamine release so they're not releasing that dopamine anymore and so even when the couple is reunited they, they remembered one another but that signature that that rush of dopamine 
almost vanished. So in essence, that fingerprint of like desire or craving was gone as far as their brains were concerned. So I was going to say, well, you're saying that um, science has shown long distance relationships don't work. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> well, I don't know what the equivalent in human time would be. <laughs> um, but in a long distance relationship, I think humans still put in the work, whereas with pre-evolves, perhaps they were just they were just apart and there was no okay, way yeah, for true, them true. to like Skype each other or anything. In the... I'm just thinking if I was to try and, you know, write a tabloid um, you have a headline based on this work, how I would like over extrapolate it to humans. <laughs> yeah. Well, in humans, perhaps, perhaps you couldn't sort of extrapolate that, but you could think of it as sort of a reset within the brain that allows an animal, whether it's a provol or perhaps us to, to, you know, go on and potentially form a new bond, which is kind of good news when it comes to breakups. It means that we're sure. not going to have, you know, um, unrequited, love forever <laughs> your brain resets so that you can you know look for someone else um but you know as as you as we both sort of pointed out prairie voles aren't humans so the insights into the neurobiology of love might not be directly applicable to humans um but one prairie voles are cute but also scientists are currently doing more research to answer that question of how well do results in prairie voles translate to us because as you mentioned our brains are bigger and and we're different but scientists at least do believe that this work could ultimately have important implications for people who either have trouble forming relationships and particularly close relationships or people who struggle to get over loss. So, you know, this research might hopefully go somewhere and, you know, help people love. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. Science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Okay, yes, you are listening to Lost in Science, and you've had your nice, uh, cute story about love, so you can... Turn it off now if you don't want to hear about ulcers, because that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, so, yes, the Beruli ulcer, as I said in the introduction, it has been found in several countries around the world. Um, it usually, historically, used to be named after the region where it was found, but the main accepted name is after the Beruli region in Uganda. Um, however, like I said, it's been found in Australia as well. And in fact, it's caused by a bacterium, the Mycobacterium ulcerans, which was first identified after an outbreak in Victoria in the 1940s in Bansdale. So at the time, we called it the Bansdale ulcer. Uh, that name did not stick. Uh, so, yeah, it is now known internationally as the Beruli ulcer. But apparently it can come and go. It has resurfaced here in... Uh, in recent years, I think about 2004 really started emerging again in Victoria. And the incidence has been growing. And in fact, in 2023, there was a record number of 363 cases in Victoria. Wow. So, yeah, it's not insignificant. It's considered like, it's generally considered a rare tropical disease or a neglected tropical disease. Um, and it's not, I should point out, it's not fatal, but it is kind of these disfiguring non-healing ulcers so it's pretty nasty if you have one of these and the people who get them clearly aren't very 
happy with them. Although it is treatable. There is an antibody. You can treat with antibiotics. You have like pretty strong antibiotics for about eight weeks or so um, to kill the bacteria. But eight weeks is a long time for treatment. It is. It is a lot. It's a, yeah, it's a, not a, it's not a pleasant disease, but like I said, it, fortunately it's not, it's not fatal. Um, now here, the major hotspot is in the Mornington Peninsula, mm-hmm. uh, south of Melbourne on Port Phillip Bay. But it's also spread across the bay to the Bellarine Peninsula, um, up to the Frankston area and around other bayside suburbs, as far out as East Gippsland in the, the far east of Victoria. Um, also several suburbs in Geelong and a few areas in Melbourne, kind of near the Moody Ponds Creek. So we're talking Moody Ponds, Essendon, Strathmore, Pascavale South and Brunswick West, which is where I happen to live. So this is a personal interest story, I suppose. This is why... I am talking about this in ways it has attracted my interest in particular. Well, as soon as you said Mini Ponds Creek, I was like, uh oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, that's an interesting thing. So, it is um, around the world, it is kind of associated with bodies of water, hmm. um, particularly stagnant water often. As the as often the case with these things, you know, the finger kind of gets pointed at insects that might hang around those areas, in particular the good old mosquito. However, it's this has not been proven, really, um, particularly in many places. And um, look, it's been a very con- controversial kind of solution. Um, mm. For starters, there are no other bacterial infections that are transmitted by mosquitoes in this way. Um, so, yeah, people aren't convinced. The, the World Health Organization currently lists the mode of transmission as unknown. So they're not convinced by this laser research either, it seems. But this is research, like I said, it's just been recently published by the Doherty Institute. And yeah, it doesn't consider definitive proof, but it's good evidence for how it is transmitted, at least in Australia. Yeah. So like digging into it, um, as I said, it's um, suspected that mosquitoes have a role, but there's also perhaps a role for the humble possum because the same also has been observed in possums in Australia. And so one theory is that perhaps it is the mosquitoes spreading it between possums and humans. And this could actually help explain some of the reasons why it's kind of a less common way of transmission, because it's not necessarily the mosquitoes are harboring the bacteria themselves. It's perhaps the possums that are harboring it, and the mosquitoes are simply kind of yet yeah, transmitting it from the, the possums to the humans mm-hmm. in, in whatever way. So in this latest research, what the scientists from the Doherty Institute did was they trapped mosquitoes on the Mornington Peninsula between the years 2016 and 2021. They total, In total, they trapped 73,850 mosquitoes. That is a lot of mosquitoes. That is a lot of mosquitoes. <laughs> and they did PCR tests on, so like I said, not all of them were, they managed to do PCR screening on, but they did PCR screening for the uh, bacterium. And they found it predominantly in one particular species, uh, Aedes notoscriptus, which is a common mosquito found in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it sounds like nondescript, like it's kind of a boring old mosquito. Um, and yeah there was actually one other species they found a small amount of the bacterium but it was mostly this one particular one Aedes notoscriptus had the the most of this um, mycobacterium ulcerans 
Um, yeah, so that was kind of an interesting, um, an interesting one. There was this one particular mosquito species. And so then they gathered a fair bit of other, sort of few other lines of evidence to try and connect it. So they looked at where they captured the mosquitoes, the, the positive testing mosquitoes, and they compared it to uh, where there had been cases of Borrelia ulcer in humans hmm. and also where they found possum poo with um, the bacteria in it as well. So they looked for basically an association between the, the possum poo, the positive mosquitoes, and the human cases. And they found there was, yeah, there was definitely an overlap between where there was more mosquitoes positive that you would find more Borrelia ulcer cases and you would find more likely to find evidence of it in possums as well. Um, they also show, looked at the, the blood meals that these mosquitoes had had, and they found that they had been feeding on both possums and humans, again, making that connection between um, the possums and the humans. And they also analysed the, um, the genetics of the bacteria itself, and they found it was essentially the same strain in the, the mosquitoes and the possums and the humans in those areas. So they found a fair bit of evidence suggesting that there was definitely a link between the three species and this bacterium. So even though they haven't definitely proven it, the, the evidence is highly suggestive. And this is along with other kind of circumstantial evidence that's been gathered over the years, such as, you know, things like um, insect repellent and bed nets and things seem to be protective of it. And as I said, it's found near um, water, which is a mosquito breeding thing. Um, the ulcers often occur on the lower legs where mosquitoes often bite people. So there's a lot of circumstantial evidence adding up. As I said, though, this is not necessarily the same everywhere in the world. So if we look at Africa, where um, most of the cases in the world are, um, for starters, they don't have possums. Mm. And no other pos- no other suitable mammal species has been found yet that is a reservoir of, of the bacteria. Also, there was a, a paper published in 2017 that did similar kind of testing on mosquitoes in villages in Benin, and they didn't find the uh, the mycobacterium ulcerans in those mosquitoes so they they couldn't find a link between the mosquitoes and the the Borrelia ulcer and are those mosquitoes a different species because you said that the the species carrying it here are common in australia well that's interesting yeah the species that they found there the most common species there um was a different species definitely mm. to what we have here and also they tried infecting the larvae of that species there with the bacterium and they found that it didn't persist to adulthood so they kind of also said this makes it less likely that it's you know in the mosquitoes however like as i said the the theory here seems to be that it's not necessarily the mosquitoes are breeding the bacteria the mosquitoes are maybe just transmitting it from the possums to humans so they're mm. not necessarily breeding it from birth um although depending on how they acquire it as well. Um, the fact they're feeding on possums indicates that perhaps it is coming via the blood. But yeah, it is interesting that it is a different species and perhaps there is something about different species that make them more likely to, to carry it. There were also other... There was one other um, species that was found to have uh, the bacteria in the um, Warner Peninsula region. That was um, some blowflies uh, mm. found to have it as well. But they rarely bite people so they're not believed to be a major kind of vector for it however it's possible that there are other species elsewhere that are doing this job and haven't been identified yet so there are other kind of insects might be living in the water um giant water bugs for instance are known to be able to 
um, the transmitted as well. So yeah, it hasn't been found yet what perhaps is causing it in those other in those other places. But like I said, this is um, pretty good circumstantial evidence or pretty good case building for the mosquitoes, at least in Victoria. Um, and so that is kind of the focus of control efforts at the moment. Um, there isn't another project that's related to this whole kind of beating Bruley kind of umbrella project that they've got going on where they're trying to control mosquito numbers in the hotspot areas. They've got these water-filled traps. The idea they're attractive breeding sites, but when the mosquitoes go in there, they um, get exposed to a growth regulator and an infectious fungus that then they take out and it prevents them from growing up and biting people, essentially, is the idea. Interesting. I wonder if people are doing that in, like, malaria hotspots too. I think there are quite a few different mosquito control methods being used. Yeah, because I've heard of other ones, but not that before. Yeah. Um, So that is an interesting thing that's being used, uh, I guess, on a public health level. Um, On an individual level, I suppose you can look at your own kind of you know, bits of water you might have around your house if you do you know, empty out any water containers, particularly when it's been raining. Like, it has been a fairly wet summer, I suppose. And if there is, like, stagnant pools of water laying around, perhaps empty them out. You don't want mosquito breeding sites around you. Um, you could also, of course, use insect repellents, um, preferably ones containing DEET or picaridin, however you spell it. Um, these, you know, these sound like nasty chemicals, but they are safe. Um, there's been apparently a bit of advertising lately on social media for things like stickers and wristbands and those sort of things. Um, they are not as effective as mm. the, the chemical repellent. So you're better off using something that works rather than something yeah. that sounds good, but is not actually going to protect you. Um, you can also like cover up as well if you're going to be out, uh, or there are mosquitoes flying around, but yeah, the idea is essentially if you're in an area where it is uh, a possibility of Borrelia ulcer, it makes sense to try and avoid getting bitten if you can. Um, if you are bitten there and you do have a suspicious skin lesion, you can talk to your doctor about it. There is a test, uh, a PCR test they can do um, to detect if you have it. And as I said, it's quite treatable if it is identified and especially if it's identified early enough. Um Look, one of the things that makes it hard to to identify is that it is very slow growing, apparently, this bacterium. It takes a few months for it to emerge, say, after the yeah. hypothetical bite. So Yeah, like you could have been bitten months ago. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, you know, um, if it does, something pops up in a suspicious site and it's like I said, it's not, it's not healing, then, yeah, do see your doctor. Um, they know about it. Yeah, the good thing is that they do now because I think like a few years ago people were presenting and doctors just had no idea. But I think, you know, it's it's more on people's minds now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, you can always ask them to do a test, I guess, and, and prompt them. Um, be one of those Dr. Google types. They love that. <laughs> I, I understand. But, yeah, so stay safe out there and, yeah, don't get bitten. And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search ranking so other people can find the science. 
or you can listen to us however you listen to us now, where at the same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.